I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. All right, I'm going to match you notebook for notebook right yeah, there. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm little... going to run out of hands, but that's all right. So uh, it, I was sitting listening to the life in other places and, um, and the, and the bottom-up power of, of uh, Wikimedia, and I wondered whether we ought to talk about how to make life better here, and, and it made me think about the election that we're in. You, you among other things, are putting future in futurism and design together and talk about anticipatory democracy. Right, what yeah, that's, that? a, that's a term that uh, Alvin Toffler, I think, coined what is in it? the 1970s. You've been doing such, uh, one of the things we have in common is both of us coming up to the edge of the limits of the scenario methodology invented a while ago, and we've done it in different ways. And I'm very fascinated with this, these experiments you've been doing. So have you done anything yet in, in, in a way that really has come up to the edge of getting people to do things differently? Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, well, I have attempted to, yeah. yeah. Um, prior to moving to the Bay Area about a year ago, um, I lived in Hawaii and um, uh, worked for the Hawaii Research Center for Future Studies, which was set up in 1971 um, by a gentleman named Jim Data, who still uh, directs it. And uh, the history of the organization is sort of interesting because it was established at the end of a year-and-a-half-long process called Hawaii 2000 um, that was run in 1970-71, uh, I think, for about 18 months. And it was the single largest, um, broadest-based, most participatory exercise in futuring, in foresight, uh, ever held anywhere. So Hawaii 2000, 1970, looking 30 years ahead. And um, the... Uh, HRCFS, as I'll call it, was set up at the end of that. Now, um, the sad kind of coda to this mess, to, to that process. Oh, and I, I mean, I forgot to mention it, Alvin Toffler was brought out. Arthur C. Clarke, the good and the great, were, uh, you know, future thinkers of the time were uh, were participating in this. And Hawaii had only been a state for ten years wow. at that point, so it was a very promising kind of early um, signal that they were um, interested in. Uh, institutionalizing a, a forward view. Now, sadly, what happened uh, was in 1973, there was an oil crisis, and in effect, a lot of that, uh, that forward thinking was um, shelved in favor of crisis management, and um, it never really made its way back into the political process. So by the time the year 2000 came around, what had actually eventuated in Hawaii was one of the worst-case scenarios that people had imagined in, uh, in 1970. So um, I, I started there uh, five years later, 2005, and at the end of that year, the state government approached us at the Futures Centre and said, we'd like to have a statewide conversation about the future, you know, deja vu, um, but, to, but this time we want to we base the conversation around sustainability and we, we'll make the focal point, the time horizon, 2050. And so in 2005, this kind of planning process began, and in 2006, um, it was kicked off. Now, I'm getting to the answer of your question, which was we realized that, um, that uh, 
involving people in a discussion of the relatively far future. Several decades out is not where most of us spend most of our day, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a complex and difficult thing to get people who have urgent issues, they have kids to feed, they have jobs to do, they have uh, meetings to make it to, and the multi-decadal timeline future is not generally on the table. So we had to find a way to make it compelling, make it concrete, make it present to people. And so um, I think the experiment, or one of them that you're referring to, was uh, an attempt by uh, myself and uh, Jake Dunnigan, who's now at Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, to, um, to stage what we called experiential scenarios. So a series of immersive experiences that evoked, or that sort of attempted to role play, in essence, four different versions of the year 2050 that people could uh, could spend time in, and then discuss their future, you know, their priorities, their expectations on the basis of a far more visceral and, and bodily um, and lived sense of the variety of, of futures on offer. So, I mean, and I'd say that that is sort of trying to push things and, and up would you to also the kind of, of what's you, possible. You, there was a prankster quality to, to some of it, too. I mean, so which of it worked the best? Well, the prankster... Um, I, I, I like the history of the word, um, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, and you know. I think there's one in the room. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but uh, but yeah, the, the connotations uh, can be difficult too. Um, basically, the that process, the 2050 one, um, in in some ways. Um, failed to be institutionalized effectively as well. I mean, a sustainability plan was produced. You can find it online, but there's nothing particularly compelling about it. And as far as I know, um, you know, life in Hawaii has not been revolutionized. Um, it's nice to see that it has come, uh, you know, some distance in, um, in terms of uh, environmental awareness, some of the basic things like recycling programs and things. Um, but, uh, but basically, the the process wasn't, um, although the intervention that we held for 2050 was a great success as for, 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 uh, um, compared to your standard workshop process, um, the larger agenda of which it was a part was not an overwhelming success, uh, unfortunately. And so it was with some reluctance that uh, Jake and I turned to... Um, well, reluctance, but excitement, actually, because there was, there was a lot of interesting potential there, that we turned to bringing futures um, into people's everyday lives, whether they had asked for them or not. So we would send them postcards from alternative versions of the year 2036, um, or um, there was a project we conducted in Chinatown, Honolulu, where um, posters and various artifacts from alternative versions of Chinatown in the future were sort of plastered uh, in the streets for people to stumble across during their lunch hour. Um, which was more successful? Um, I think there are um, pros and cons to both the kind of contained setting of a workshop, a known participant base, all that kind of thing, compared to um, trying to address people directly in the middle of their, you know, in the middle of their day when they haven't asked for it. Um, but I think the latter is needed because, the, because not enough people are opting into the former and to having conversations about futures, you know, for all the urgent yeah. reasons that I referred to You know, to one of the things that I feel, um, I, I first went to work at GBN with Peter and Stuart in 95, um, 
<clears throat> and I think that was about the same time Long Now was was uh, getting going. Right. And I think in the 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 attention span and the way in which things have sped up has has gotten a lot worse in that period of time. So I mean, the, the inspiring sense of you know, if you can get people to think about the long term, you have a better chance of getting to do the right thing, which was, a, you know, part of the purpose that got me to go to GBN in the first place. Um, I just think that's getting harder and harder and harder to do instead of, you know, with, uh, despite all the wonderful things that, that have been done and are happening. And I really do wonder what, uh, and, and I think of it, you know, in terms of our, of, of our politics. So we think about, you know, democracy not in the Wikimedia case, but in what we are in this, you know, it's just... It's like, how do we get people to engage in something uh, larger rather than shorter term and and more narrow? You know, it just seems like it's getting harder and harder. And that's why I was really, I was just really interested yeah. in some of the experiments that you, that you were doing. I mean, I, I got, I, I, for me with scenarios, the the thing that I kept running into was the the way the point at which the scenarios met the human system that had to act on them. Um, and, and often the great breakdown between, no matter what perceptions or ideas people had come, just sort of the, the sheer reality of talking about the, the implementation of insights yeah, gleaned yeah, through the scenario Yeah, I mean, just, process. I mean, and, and of course the people who, you know, started working on that at Shell knew that from the beginning. But, right. but it's, um, what I've spent many, much of the last years doing is uh, trying to uh, move into systems where, the issues of the what I would think of as the the human and organizational and financial sustainability right. um, questions of how you get institutions um, and human communities to hold the long term. Um, you know what what does that look like? And I think that's one one of the other really interesting experiments about long now. Not just how do we build this clock that's going to last, but you know, how do you build an organization that could right. main, maintain it, you know, and, and all the rest. Um, right. but I'm, I'm interested. In, um, I, have a lot, I have a lot of questions about that. I'm not sure I have any answers, but I'm, I'm curious about what, you're, what, you're, what well, you think. Well, I, I mean, it seems to me that one of the uh, – it, it makes a lot of difference, um, I've noticed, um, based uh, – it makes a lot of difference to how people understand what they think you're doing based on whether you introduce yourself as being a, future, a futurist a futures person or, um, you know, risk management person. I don't think of my work in, in those terms, but that is much easier for people to understand. Strategic management, no problem. You know, that's serious work. Um, Prankster. Well. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that too. Um, but I, um, and foresight is actually um, more readily understood by people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think of those terms as almost interchangeable, foresight being the capacity and futures, alternative futures being the subject matter which the foresight is kind of exercised on, if you like. Um, but, uh, but if you talk about your work as being futures work or being a futurist, um, it seems to import boatloads of connotations um, and assumptions which are largely unhelpful. Um, to the conversa- to actually getting people to uh, to think about the future and, yep. and to think of things in terms of alternatives, and um, and so you know it's become clear to me that it's that it's important to um, to recognise that that this perspective you know the longer term and the the multiple scenario perspective that one has to offer needs to be seen as part of an array of tools that people bring to whatever task it is that they're doing. You know, if you are, um, 
if you allow yourself to be typecast as, ju- as the person who, on- who is always and only constantly advocating you know, the 10,000-year the, uh, view, then there's going to be a massive disconnect. But what's actually called for is, sort of a, is more of a long zoom type of idea where you're you're see- you can see things uh, in the present for you know, what they are or what they appear to be and then to sort of assume um, f- the perspective of the longer term in addition to that and, and to be able to alternate between how things look from here and how things look you know, 10, 20, 50, however many is appropriate years out, but um, not to kind of... Uh, not to be understood as trying to supplant people's current understandings because that doesn't work. Yeah, you have to start from uh, start very much from understanding where they are and why it is that they feel the way they do. It's, right. Um, yeah, it's uh, so one thing I was curious about, you said that um, you found yourself sort of uh, coming up against the limits of scenario thinking and scenarios as a method. Can you, can you say more about what some of those limits are and how you've tried to work around them or well, um, use them to your advantage? So I think the first one I already talked about, that I got more and more interested in the uh, organizations and the human beings and, and how, how it is to help people change and help organizations change and took my work uh, in that direction even when I was uh, working in the scenario. Um, but I had a very interesting uh, opportunity that I was given to take the methodology that had been developed in business mostly and experiment with it very intensively in um, nonprofits and philanthropy over a period of years. And it was fascinating. I, I found that the business people were much better at taking a set of alternative futures and stepping back and saying, you know, well, we could do this in this future and this in this future and this in this future over here because, in fact, they were doing it for the most part about they could make money and they could make money in any future and one was more challenging than the other but it was um, but if you, t- if you did that same thing with a group of, of, of people who've just spent 20 years or 30 years invested in trying to bring a certain future about you could sometimes literally watch their body language you know, they just would go in the corner and start doing this you just couldn't you know it was, it was, it was too hard it was too threatening um, because actually some of those futures would fundamentally destroy their life's work, right? And so the fact that you could actually go live in that future and learn something and actually invent a better strategy to bring about the thing that, that was their life work, right. life's work was really, really too hard. Um, and so I, I began to experiment with and try to understand how, how to... Um, uh, you know how to how to work with some of those ideas and tools in in different ways, um, and and because I do think that we're in a moment where you know we have to innovate, we have to innovate radically across right. across many many things, and so especially for people, you know, I, I feel it's myself as as you get older, all the things that got you to where you are now are not the things you're going to need to succeed moving ahead. And so part of the job is to take the leader and shake them up enough that, that you know, without being threatened or, you know, that, that, you, that you can open up um, and, and, and see the things that, you know, 10 or 20 years ago might have been unthinkable to you that I might actually be the thing you need to do now. I think that fear that you refer to is a really interesting piece of this kind of work. And once it's articulated or, you know, once you're able to talk about it, um, it's a whole different conversation than um, 
than the fear which prevents the conversation from happening in the fir first place yeah, and yeah. prevents the examination of the future and of, you know, especially the scary ones in which your life's work amounts to nothing yeah. or, you know, is, is destroyed. Exactly. My favorite thing that I think I've ever read or heard about organizational change was the, the great um, uh, uh, organizational theorist um, Edgar Schein, uh, sat down with Harvard Business Review after spending, you know, decades studying all this, and they said to him, okay, you know, what did you learn in 50 years of research? And he said, well, really, it just was one thing, um, and that is that um, people don't, people in organizations don't change until their fear of survival exceeds their fear of learning. Um, so, you know, mostly it's so hard to learn and it's so scary that right. you have to have this kind of threat um, and, and I, you know, I feel like actually we just lived through the last 10 years of we actually wasted two major crises in the world. Um, I mean, I will oh, never forgive George Bush for many things, but mm -hmm. the thing I will absolutely never forgive him for is that he could have asked us to do anything in mm -hmm. this country. Anything. Well, when you said two crises, I thought you meant the first election and the second one, but anyway... No. <laughs> Nine, yeah, no, well, right, yeah, nine right. eleven, and, the, and then I think Obama points. failed right. to ask enough of of the, of the moment that he inherited. Right, uh, and you know, so there is something about that sort of moment of, of of fear, and when when your survival is in play, and the problem with so many of these long term things that we face in this context of time is that we don't experience them in a way that seems to threaten our survival. No, you know? right. I mean, and, th and that's the point of doing experiential scenarios yes. and bringing it, bringing it out in people is that there is a fundamentally emotional component to this kind of work, um, which has to do with um, kind of, well, you know, in, there's this book, uh, Switch, Chip, Heath, yes, and Dan yes. Heath, mm -hmm. where they talk about mm -hmm. the rider and the elephant yes. as being, you know, that's their metaphor for yes. the two sides of the, of the psychological system, right. the rational and the emotional. And, um, and you have to motivate the elephant as well as per, you know, uh, persuade the rider in order to move in the desired direction. Um, and so, I mean, I think that translating futures work and scenarios into experiences that people can have is a way of bringing these things out. You know, and it might scare the hell out of the elephant to do that. But, um, but a, com a, a hypothetical conversation like that is the safe space where you can go through those things. I mean, rather than waiting for the crisis to happen. One thing that we said, you know, in response to the um, prankster newspaper coverage of some of the, the interventions we did in the public was that, uh, you know, it's better to be surprised by a simulation than blindsided by reality because the simulation can't hurt you. If you wait until the, the reality, you know, uh, hits you over the head and you move into crisis mode, well, yeah, it's a lot, politically it's a lot easier to defend because, look, there's a crisis. It's, it's really self-evident. But you've already lost the opportunity to actually move proactively towards the future that you want. And, you know, also crisis can be abused, <coughs> well, as you've just suggested. I've missed the moment to ask you what your next experiment is, so I guess we're going to have to all find out. Yeah, it's, well, it's great yeah, to meet you. To Thank you. Likewise. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.